0: Thank you. Very fitting hymn for the subject this morning. Turn with me to the book of Leviticus in chapter 1. Leviticus in chapter 1. I understand that you've been in the book of Exodus, the tabernacle, and Lord willing, you'll probably begin in the book of Leviticus, but you may not be in the earlier chapters. So I thought it might be good to look into the book of Leviticus, particularly these first chapters, and sort of get an idea of what the book of Leviticus is about, sort of an introduction, and then focus in on the five offerings that are found in these first few chapters. So without any further uh, discussion of that, I'm going to begin reading from Leviticus chapter 1 and verse 1. And the Lord called unto Moses and spake unto him out of the tabernacle of the congregation, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, If any man of you bring an offering unto the Lord, ye shall bring your offering of the cattle, even of the herd and of the flock. If his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own voluntary will at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord. And he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. He shall kill the bullock before the Lord and the priest, Aaron's son, shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood round about upon the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Verse 7. And the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire upon the altar and lay wood in order upon the fire and the priest Aaron's son shall lay the parts the head and the fat in order upon the wood that is on the fire which is upon the altar but his inward inwards and his legs shall he wash in water and the priest shall burn all on the altar to be a burnt sacrifice an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the lord it's always been of interest to me to think of the structure of these first five books of the Bible, and maybe it would be better for me to say the structure of, of how these books are laid out and the order in which we find them, it's very instructive. Of course, the book of Genesis is the book of beginnings, the book of origins, we find there how things got going, so to speak. Sometimes we mistakenly think that the Bible is a, a book of the history of the world. It does tell us of the origin of the world. It tells us of the origin of mankind. And yet, one cannot read the Bible without understanding that it takes a very much more narrow view, if you will, of history, because from chapter 12 until roughly the end of the gospel accounts, the focus is going to narrow in on one particular people group, the nation of Israel. And it's more the history of Israel and the nations that are connected or come in contact with them than it is on a history book about all of the other nations of the world, which to me is a very simple thing uh, in this sense of why we find sometimes certain nations are not mentioned prophetically, because it is only those nations usually that immediately surround or come in contact with that particular land and people group that are That are brought to our attention. It's not that God doesn't have an interest in the rest of the world, because He would bring forth, using Israel as a vehicle or a means, uh, the Messiah who would be the source of blessing and salvation to all of the people groups of the world. When we see that great scene opening up in the early chapters of the book of Revelation, we see people of every tribe, every nation, every ethnicity, every language group praising the Lamb who shed His blood to redeem them from their sins. And so God has an interest in the world in general, and yet at the same time, uh, the history of the Bible will move that focus down particularly beginning in the book of Genesis to this one nation that he would use as a vehicle or a means to accomplish his will and purpose. And so you've been looking at the book of Exodus in some detail, I I assume, and seeing there that that book that brings before us the way out, the way out of Egypt, uh, brings us something else, a vast amount of ter- material, not just on how they began to take their journey. Because remember that when you come in the book of Exodus to chapter 19 to the area of the Sinai, the nation of Israel that's newly constituted there and has entered into covenant relationship with God, and he has entered into covenant relationship with them, they are encamped in that area, and they do not move in our Bibles, they do not move from Exodus 19 until you come to Numbers in chapter 10, which always lends itself to a question. What were they doing all that time? From Exodus 19 all the way to Numbers chapter 10. And we know that one of the things that they were doing, as a matter of fact, most of the second half of the book of Exodus is taken up with instruction concerning the tabernacle, the house of God, the tent, the place where God would presence himself. And so in the book of Exodus, God spoke out of uh, the cloud. He spoke out of the burning bush to Moses, particularly without mediator, directly to him. And now the book of Leviticus actually begins, although we call it the book of Leviticus, which is more of a Greek word that means pertaining to the priest. In the Hebrew, it's simply uh, the Lord called. And he calls now, not out of the wilderness so much, but he calls... ...unto Moses out of the tabernacle. Remember in chapter 40 of Exodus, the tabernacle has been erected. Everything has been put in its proper place. All the furniture has been arranged. The cloud of God's presence and glory is now residing on that place of propitiation, that, that mercy seat there within the Holy of Holies on the Ark of the Covenant. And God now speaks from that particular place and so while the book of Exodus tells us about the way out the book of Leviticus tells us about the way in it's very instructive now it can be a a bit of a difficult book to read it's not everybody's you know cup of tea for every morning uh, every day of the year because it it, quite frankly some of it's fairly tedious and a little bit different difficult to understand and might even cause you sometimes to think Why do I care how the priest washed the kidneys and the innards of a sheep? But one of the things that we learn from the book of Leviticus, and it's the reason why I said that was such a fitting uh, hymn uh, to precede this message, we learn that God is holy. And God will be approached in his way. God will be approached in his manner. And human beings will not just be allowed to traipse any old way they please into the presence of the holy and the righteous God. He will instruct them, even in the minutia, even in the very detailed things we read of this book of Leviticus, very specifically of how he must be approached and that verse that will resound not only in the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus, but in the New Testament as well in First Peter. Be ye holy, because I am holy. And in, the, in its basic concept, holiness, that separation unto someone and apart from something, but God in his essence is holy because he is absolutely so other than we are. And God rest in the holiness that is intrinsic in his very being and nature. And God would instruct his people at that very basic level. How he was to be approached, how he was to be worshipped, was not left up to man's way of choosing Remember that in the book of Exodus, the Lord said in Exodus 25, 8, Build me a sanctuary that I might dwell among you. Because God wanted to be close to his people. He wanted the people to be close to him. But before this journey begins, which you'll read about in the book of Numbers and and following, they are instructed as to how they are to approach God and how they are to worship him. And so we learn some very basic principles of God's dealings with his people, some, some lessons that can be extracted from that that are instructive to us today who are living on the other side of the cross of Calvary. The very first priority, how to approach to God. Leviticus one: the Lord called unto Moses and spake unto him out of the tabernacle of the congregation. The tabernacle was erected. Now, it's been noted before that when you come to the book of Exodus and all the instructions concerning God's house, the tabernacle, you have more information given on that than you do on a lot of things in the Bible. I mean, God dismisses the creation of the stars in five words. He made the stars also. And though you may think, well, I'd like to know a lot more about that, he just hasn't given us a whole bunch of information about that. And yet, when we compare the amount of material that had to do with the building and construction and the sacrifices and everything that went with his house, that's instructive in itself, isn't it? And so now his house has been erected. The very first thing that they are told to do, once that house is erected, they are instructed on what they are to bring. What do I learn from that? I learned that the very first priority in God's order of things is not what I am to get, but what I am to bring. That's what the lesson was for them, wasn't it? He did not set the tabernacle up and, and come up with a system of sacrifice, primarily initially, in order that it would be for what they would get. This is what they would bring to the Lord. Not what I get, what I get so much, but what I give. And you notice as I read of this very first offering, the burnt or the ascending offering, all was to be burnt upon the altar. Everything was there to be consumed by the fire. Is our God, is our Lord, worthy of receiving something even if I don't get anything? What do I bring? And so we all know, though, don't we? I mean, God is just that way in his graciousness that when we come and give to the Lord, certainly we're blessed. And yet there is a difference, isn't there? It's not the focus on the blessing. We focus on the blesser. And as we focus on the blesser, well, we receive the blessing. Although the, the goal of it, you see, is what we bring as unto the Lord. And so there stood first of these five offerings that are listed here. You notice in chapter one, you have the burnt offering You'll notice that uh, in chapter 2 you have the meal or the meat offering as it's called there, a gift offering. In chapter 3 there is the peace offering. In chapter 4 there is a sin offering. And in chapter 5 there is a trespass offering. And then what you're going to get is the law of the offerings that's going to mix the order a little bit following through the next few chapters uh, and give us some instruction there about how and and what way these things were to be done. Five offerings that stand at the outset of the book of Leviticus. It tells us something else, doesn't it? If, in fact, these things speak of Christ and of his person and his work, and I believe that they do, and there's New Testament authority for that, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 2 tells us that Christ offered himself as an offering to God, as a sweet-smelling fragrance, and sacrifice. It's a direct link to what we find here in the book of Leviticus. If these offerings represent to us the person and work of Christ, one question that might come to mind is why are there so many of them? Why couldn't there just be one thing? Why couldn't he just make it where a a lamb, that's all there was, a lamb, or maybe a cow, or maybe whatever, and yet You know, when we think of the sacrifice of Christ, while the basic elements of the gospel are simple enough, in that sense, for us to grasp, there is a profundity that is there. There is a depth that is there to the the work of Christ and to the person of Christ that could never be presented to us with just one sacrifice. There are dimensions of what Christ did, even as we'll see in these offerings, that... um, cannot be exhausted with just bringing us some one flat-line approach to something. And so as we begin to think about these different offerings and what they represent to us, we'll begin to get a fuller picture of the beauty and the wonder of Christ's person and Christ's work and the sacrifice that the Lord Jesus presented offering himself. And yet at the same time, the book of Leviticus will bring before us the great contrast, won't it? That what all of these sacrifices, and I tell you, I read through this book sometimes and think, wow, how complicated was that? No wonder they needed priests to instruct them in that day. Because the priests had to be sure this had to be done a certain way and at a certain time and in a certain manner. And it gets very complex when you begin to read it. And yet all that complexity... And all the multitudes of those sacrifices, they could never do what that one little word tells us in Hebrews Christ did once, one sacrifice for sins forever. And so there's also, by, by way of contrast, but I want to encourage you with one other thing before we get into the offerings in particular, and that is in this book of Leviticus, there is another major difference to this book that sets it apart from almost any other book in the Bible, and that is that while we have a few um, sections in the book of Leviticus that bring before us some historical narrative that tell accounts of certain things that were done you know, in, in the book, it's, it's mostly the Lord speaking directly. The Lord said to Moses. The Lord Called. Matter of fact, in this book of Leviticus, which is often an, a book that is avoided by many people, you'll have the Lord speaking more directly than almost any other book in the Bible. The Lord called. The Lord said. Well, a book like that is certainly worth looking to see what God has to say. And of course, all scriptures, we heard the young ones remind us this morning, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. And so there stood at the very outset this burnt offering or this ascending offering at the very outset. If any man uh, let him offer, it says in verse 3, if you bring an offering, it shall be accepted. He shall bring it, it says, of his own voluntary will and offer it at the door of the tabernacle. "...an offering that ascended up to God, a burnt offering that was received up into which the Lord said it was a sweet fragrance and a sweet aroma, it was like perfume, if you will, in the nostrils of God, that there was a sacrifice that stood at the very beginning that God appreciated. It was all consumed and all burnt upon the altar." And when we think of our Lord Jesus Christ, the devotion not only of his life, but the devotion of his sacrifice, of he who said in John chapter 14 and verse 31, that the, that the world may know by this, that I love the Father. I will lay down my life and give my life. And by that act of supreme devotion and sacrifice, the world will know. That I love the Father. There stood that offering there at the very beginning that speaks to us in a sense of the devotion of heart that is required and that is pleasing to the Lord. And it tells us something else. It tells us that when we fall short of our devotion to the Lord, when we don't have what we need to have to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our strength, all of our will? Is there a sacrifice? Is there something that will make up for my lack of devotion that I know I want to have if I'm a believer in Christ? And I want to love God. But as I can confess before you honestly this morning, listen, if this whole thing depends on how much I love God, I'm in trouble. Because I know I don't love Him As I should. I don't love him as I want to. I'll tell you there is a sacrifice that stands. In its devotion to the father's will. Of one who came and always did that which pleased the father. Who even as he gazed into that cup. Knowing what was before him like no one else could ever know as he looked into that cup of what he was about to partake of, what he was about to become there on Calvary's cross. He did not turn away. He did not turn his back. And he went all the way to that place in that supreme act of devotion. And what happened on Calvary's cross, even in all of its human brutality, And even in all of its spiritual dimensions in those darkened hours, that what the Lord Jesus did there, first of all, was not just for my salvation. It was for the Father. It was for God. And it was accepted of Him. So there stood at the very outset, at the very portal, at the very beginning, this burnt or ascending offering that rose up to God and was received as a sweet savor. And then you notice in chapter 2, there was the meal offering. If, if and when any will offer a meal offering unto the Lord, his offering shall be a fine flour. He shall pour oil upon it and frankincense thereon and so on. This is the only one of the offerings out of the five offerings here at the beginning of Leviticus that was not an animal offering. It was the only offering that had no blood. So it stands unique in that sense. It is called the meat or the meal offering. It was made with fine, perfectly balanced flour. We see that there was oil that was placed upon it, frankincense that was placed upon it. In chapter 2 and verse 13, uh, it was seasoned with salt. And in verse 11 of chapter 2, there was to be no leaven or no honey in that Particular offering. We also find in chapter 2 and verse 12 that it could be the first fruits of the green ears of corn. It could be baked in an oven. It could be baked in an open pan. It could be baked in a sort of a, a griddle, if you will. Now, I'm not trying to be fanciful in this. Except to say, one has to ask the question, what do we see in this that reminds us of our Lord Jesus? Is there anything here? We know that in Matthew, in his gospel, in chapter 26 and verse 6 and elsewhere in the scripture, the Lord referred to bread as a likeness of his body. Even this morning, as believers in the Lord Jesus, we who know him gathered together to remember the Lord Jesus in the breaking of the bread, this bread that represented his body. Here was a sacrifice that wasn't about the outpouring of blood or the consuming of an animal sacrifice and the giving of a a life in in that way. But think about the perfection of the life of Jesus Christ. The balance of that life. Never has there been a life ever lived upon this planet that could find and strike that perfect balance. The beauty and perfection of his life. Grace and truth. And we so often go one way or the other, don't we? We lean too hard one, sometimes on truth and lean too hard the other times on grace. It's difficult for us to strike that balance Never was difficult in the life of the Lord Jesus. Here's one who had a life who never, think of this, never misspoke a word. Here's one who knew exactly what to say in every situation. Here's one who could function in companionship, if you will, with those that were of a high level or those that were a low level and knew exactly what to do in every situation examining the life of the Lord Jesus, holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, the beauty and the perfection of the life of the Lord Jesus. And it's that perfect life and the perfect Son of God that makes His sacrifice, in that sense, acceptable. And then we think of these different methods of this sacrifice as it was offered. Sometimes it was in an open pan that which could be seen and was evident to everyone. Other times it was baked in an oven. May I suggest to you that when it came to the Lord Jesus and his life upon this earth, there were those things that he suffered openly and outwardly from those among whom he moved and lived. But there were other things unseen to us, particularly in those dark hours on Calvary's cross, were like in the oven like in the furnace, where the heat and the fire, in that sense, consumed him. There was the oil that was placed upon it, and the frankincense. And then the wonderful thing that we see in chapter 2 and verse 3, that the remnant of the meal offering was to be Aaron's and his son's a thing most holy of the offerings of the Lord made by fire. In verse 10, that which is left of the meal offering shall be Aaron's and his son's. It is a thing most holy of the offerings of the Lord made by fire. It was food for the priest. The priest fed on that meal offering of a portion of it of what was left. And you and I who are believers in the Lord Jesus You see, we're able to feed upon Him as we observe His life as it's given to us in the account of Scripture. We think of Him and His absolute perfection of who He is in all of His life. And you see how the two go hand in hand. If you only had the meal offering, that wouldn't be enough. Just the life of Christ, not enough. There must also be the burnt offering. And yet the meal offering gives that uh, perfection of life so that the burnt offering has the correct value. And then next you see in chapter 3 that there was to be an oblation of a sacrifice of a peace offering. And the details are given to us uh, concerning the peace offering. It also had several unique things that are told us, uh, given to us by way of instruction. But one of the things I notice is that When you come to the law of the offerings that begins to recount these offerings, beginning in in, in chapter 6 and 7, that all of a sudden the peace offering is moved to the end. You find it again in chapter 7 and verse 11, the law of the sacrifice of the peace offerings, which is interesting, so that in the order that's given of the law of the offerings of the peace offerings, the peace offering is moved... To the end. So that in a sense, the the manner in which we see them progressing, all of the other offerings are taking place. The burnt offering, the meal offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering, with the result being the peace offering. And the peace offering again, one of those offerings where the offerer was able to partake of the offering. Think of it. God receiving an offering and the offerer partaking of that offering, what a symbol it was of man being able to partake of that which God has partaken of, of the two of them enjoying, if you will, a meal, man and God being brought together in a way to be able to fellowship. What an incredible thought it is when we, when we think of it in that way. And then you'll notice in chapter 4, there was what's called the sin offering. Speak unto the children of Israel, verse 2. If any soul shall sin through ignorance, and so on. I won't read the entire chapter for sake of time. Except to say that you're going to notice that in chapter 2, in the first part, there was that which was for the priest... There was that which was for the congregation. There was that which was for the ruler. There was that which was for what we'd call just the regular folks. So it sort of covered all the bases. If any of these individuals and wherever they came, if, if they sinned, here's the offering that they are to bring for their sin offering, their sin offering. The blood in chapter 4 was to be poured, sprinkled rather. The priest shall put some of the blood in verse 6, dip his finger in the blood, sprinkle the blood seven times before the Lord, before the veil of the sanctuary, put some of the blood upon the horns of the altar of sweet incense before the Lord, and then pour the rest of the blood of the bullock at the bottom of the altar of the burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation." In chapter 4, in verse 11, one of the other unique features is this, that the skin of the bullock and all his flesh and his head, his legs, and everything that pertained to his insides, they were to carry that forth without the camp to a clean place where the ashes are poured out and burn him on the wood with fire where the ashes are poured out. There he shall be burnt. Think of that. Where was this offering to be taken Where was it to be burned? This was unique. Outside the camp. Outside the camp. This was a sin offering. And it wasn't to be burnt in the usual manner or in the usual place. But it was to be burnt outside the camp. You know, um, I was talking to my brother Ramsey this morning and I mentioned something of Cana of Galilee, where 90% of the people are Seferi's. I think he mentioned to me there, the last name. But anyway, um, we were privileged to go to Israel in 2005. And I, I may have told this part of the story. Uh, we had a Jewish guide, which is practically, I guess it's mandatory. Interesting fellow. His um, English name was Paul. His Hebrew name was Phineas. His Spanish name was Pablo, and his last name was Polish. But um, he had a Spanish name because during the Holocaust, he'd been sent to South America, as was common in many cases. And so he probably spoke seven languages, very fascinating man, a walking Bible encyclopedia. Best as I could tell, not a believer in the Messiah, but uh, an amazing amount of Bible knowledge. And we were standing near the place uh, called Gordon's Calvary, and he was describing to us how another certain place, you know, there's a little bit of scholarly debate over where exactly Calvary is, there's Gordon's Calvary in another place that has a shrine and everything else, and he said to me this, he said, it could not have been that place. And he's showing me a map of the city. And you sort of go around the city, and then you see where they would sort of redrawn the lines so that this other place, you know, could be sort of taken in. But he said this. He said, it could not have been that place. He had to suffer outside the camp, outside the gate, outside the wall. I'm like, preach it, brother, you know. I mean... I, I kept wanting to say to him so many times, do you realize what you're saying? But he was so clear on that. And that's Bible, isn't it? That's Hebrews, isn't it? Concerning the Lord Jesus who died. And listen, when Christ came and died as an offering for sin, and be sure you get that straight in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where it says he was made sin for us, that doesn't mean Christ was made a liar it doesn't mean he was made a fornicator. It doesn't mean he was made a thief. You might want to read that verse this way. He was made a sin offering for us. And he satisfied the righteous requirements of God in relationship to sin. He became a sin offering. As Malcolm said in his prayer this morning, he could never become anything other than what he was. I mean, he, he never could be less than what he always has been, even though he took a body of humanity and welded it to deity. And so he was a sin offering, but he died outside the camp. He didn't come and die in a palace. He didn't come and die in the temple. Outside the gate, the place of rejection, rejection by man, rejection by religion, still that way today, and yet accepted by God and accepted by those who love him and know Him as Savior. We find the value in what the world has rejected and religion has rejected and mankind mocks and ridicules, we find in that sacrifice for sin. Our very salvation and our Savior, don't we? And we praise His name for it. A sweet fragrance. He died in the place where criminals died. You see, sin that separates from God, sin in its rebellion, in its disobedience, had to be satisfied. And you read at least four times in this chapter, it shall be forgiven him. And then finally, I'm not going to make up for the last two times I was here, you know. That's a sort of an inside joke there. And and uh, you just have to get that on credit for the times that I wasn't able to... Anyway, we're almost there. You know, I think I'm going to make it today, Mike. I'm okay, you know. Uh, anyway, uh, we finally come to the last one in this order of the five offerings, the trespass offering. The trespass offering was also unique in this. Because in the trespass offering, you not only had to make up for the damage that you had done, you not only had to bring an offering, you had to bring the principal plus 20% on top of it. make restitution. So now there was an offering whereby the person who had been damaged ended up with more than what they had at the first. So if you had a cow or if you had, and it was valued at a certain thing, 20% plus the principal of it was given to you if that's what was damaged, whatever it was. So now this person ended up with more than what they lost. What an amazing thing that was. And when we think of the gospel, of the damage that sin has done, of that which has been violated by our sin and by our nature, we think of what Christ has done. What an amazing thing the simple line that we sometimes sing, I think it was mentioned this morning, he paid a debt he didn't owe. I owed a debt I couldn't pay. And yet how do I come out of it? Way better than when I went in. I come to Christ and not only is my sin taken care of and the penalty of my transgression and my guilt removed and my conscience cleansed, but there's more. I come out way better than how I ever started, don't I? now i'm a child of god a joint heir with jesus christ i going to live and dwell with him all eternity and the whole package that is now mine because i'm a believer in christ what could do that is there an offering that could accomplish that yes there is isn't there and where sin abounded grace did much more abound and through the offering of christ i come out better than where i started so much better. And then I close with this, just thinking again of the order of these things. It's almost in a reverse order when we, when we begin to think of these offerings, that is, of our approach to God. Man is guilty and a sinner. He needs uh, forgiveness. There is the trespass offering. Uh, human beings are sinners. They need a, an atoning sacrifice. There is the sin offering. He, in his heart, is alienated from God. He needs reconciliation. There is the peace offering. He's fallen and depraved in nature. Needs a substitute, one who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. The meal offering. He's utterly unworthy in himself, human beings are. Without anything of his own that's worthy to offer to God. And yet he can stand accepted in the beloved. There is the burnt or the ascending offering. And so just a little bit of thought concerning these offerings as we find them here in the book of Leviticus. We could say much more about it, but our time is gone. And we'll close from there. And may the Lord give us good thoughts concerning our Lord Jesus of the fullness and the depth of his person and his work as God gave his people a means of approach by way of sacrifice so that they could be in his presence at that level. Let's look to him in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. And we would expect nothing less than a certain amount of, how do we say it, Lord, complexity regarding his person and regarding his sacrifice. We're talking about eternal things here. We're talking about the God of the universe having to be expiated and satisfied and propitiated through a sacrifice that would take care of all that has gone wrong. As a matter of fact, it is so expansive that your plan, even for the world in which we live and what will take place, Lord, is based upon what Christ did on the cross of Calvary. And yet, Lord, without becoming too uh, obtuse or too uh, uh, complex in thought about it, it's so simple in one sense that even the youngest child can get hold of it. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so if there's one here today, Lord, that doesn't know Christ as Savior, we pray that you would press upon their heart, their need, because they're sinful in the sight of a holy God. They'll never make it into heaven on their own works, by their religion, by any of their own efforts, but there was one who came and died. He bore our sins in his body on the tree that we being dead to sins might live under righteousness, the Lord Jesus Christ, the just for the unjust. We thank you for him of whom the scripture speaks. We give you thanks in his name. Amen.